How do you prepare for your day? What are the things, the rituals, the habits that you do each and every morning to get yourself ready to face the day ahead? Maybe you're like me currently, where I'm a guy that's pretty regimented. I like to have specific things and ways that I prepare for each day. In my days of singleness and early marriage, I had kind of the same routines that I would walk through each morning to, to look at the day ahead, to you know glance through some emails, to spend some time in the Word. Um, currently, my morning routine is complete and utter chaos. We have a 16-month in our house, 16-month-old in our house, and so when we get ready for the day, it's a tug of war of who's holding him or watching him, making sure he doesn't break something while the other squeezes in some semblance of what you might call a shower. It's utter chaos. But we are creatures that are meant to prepare for things. See, preparation is an unbelievably important part of our everyday lives. We prepare for all kinds of things. See, sometimes preparation can be difficult, but one of the old adages is that preparation always pays off. I wanna show you a video of, of a guy that you might know, um, Odell Beckham Jr. He is a professional football player, and this right here, this play kinda of goes down as perhaps one of the greatest plays in professional football. So take a quick look. This is sick, put this to music. I don't think he stepped out either. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen. number 39. Penalty's decline. Result of the play. Touchdown. You have to be kidding me. That is impossible. What a catch. It's an unbelievable catch. And when you, when you look back at it, he makes it look almost effortless. And I think that's something really important for us to consider. See, we see Odell make this catch and we think that it's just a reach and a grab and he's just so talented. But one of the things that you may never get to see is the amount of preparation that goes into it. See, we found another video of Odell actually getting ready for exactly this scenario. So take a look at this one. Don't miss this. Odell spent an unbelievable amount of time practicing what potentially might be an opportunity to catch a ball one-handed. See, that play wasn't by accident. It was carefully orchestrated. He spends hours running through various drills and scenarios to prepare himself for the eventuality that he might have to catch a ball in such a way someday. And so while he makes it look easy, it's important for us to understand that an unbelievable amount of preparation goes into such a play. And that's the way it is with our lives. See, we have this natural tendency to look at preparation as something we do easily in most areas of life. I try to think back of the, the major events in my life and the things that are what I would consider to be the most important. And there's an unbelievable amount of preparation that has gone into those things. I think back to recently in the past few years, planning a wedding was an unbelievable feat. The amount of hours and days and meetings and funds and, and crafting and scheming and decorating and all the things that went into making that one wedding day so special are mind-blowing. 
And my wife naturally took on way more of that than, than I did. But, but she's a champion and was able to prepare and, and have an unbelievable wedding. One of the things my wife really enjoys doing is planning travel and trips. And so she planned our honeymoon. And, and it was one of those things where me letting her do that was not me shirking responsibility, but actually a gracious gift to her because she loves to prepare to travel. And we had one of the greatest honeymoons I could have ever imagined seeing all kinds of places because of all the care and preparation that went into it. When we found out we were going to have our first child who ended up being our son, Graham, the amount of preparation and classes, we took birthing classes and parenting classes and CPR infant rescue classes and all those kinds of things. We in our lives prepare immensely for all kinds of stuff. If you are an athlete, you practice forever and ever and ever to get that play just right. We are a people that naturally love to prepare. One of the challenges we have is that we don't always translate that preparation to our spiritual lives. If you're honest with yourself, kind of like, like I hopefully can be too, when we think of our spiritual lives, we tend to not prepare nearly as much as we do for other significant life events. But yet our spiritual lives are what we consider as Christians to be the most important thing. It's always funny when I, when I spend some time in my youth ministry days talking to student athletes who put all this time and energy into soccer. They would miss church things you know, for, for that or for basketball or for volleyball or whatever it may be. They would miss all kinds of church and spiritual formation events because that was important. And, and I always would ask them, I said, you know, are you expecting to play this at a professional level? Well, no. So isn't it staggering how much time you put into something that will probably be done by the time you're in your early 20s versus something of a spiritual nature that will follow you, that will be a part of you for the rest of your life. See, we are pretty bad at preparing when it comes to our spiritual lives. And that's, I think, why we have this season of Advent. See, it's important to understand that Advent does not actually show up anywhere in Scripture. It's not a concept that is ordained by, by God to, to be celebrated. It's not like baptism or communion where he tells us, do this, spend four weeks before Christ's arrival, you know, anniversary, <laughs> getting together and preparing for his coming. No, it's, it's something that we, over time, have adapted as the church because we understand the need for spiritual preparation. And if you are anything like me, the Christmas season comes and goes in the blink of an eye. It's a mayhem of chaos, of preparing various aspects of family gatherings, to food, to presents, to all the things that need to be done in order to make Christmas what Christmas is in your homes and in your families. It takes a lot, and all of a sudden it comes and goes just like that. See, it's really easy in the midst of all of that to get lost and not to think about the spiritual realities of what we are actually celebrating during this holiday season as we get to Christmas. And so we have Advent in our church as the four weeks prior to Christmas to get ourselves ready. And so this morning, I wanna spend some time looking at the idea of preparation. And I wanna look at it through the lens of John the Baptist in Matthew 3. And so if we could go there together, we'll read it um, as we maybe stand in our homes to read scripture as, as a sign of respect. And we will read this together, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. It's John the Baptist coming to prepare the way. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, 
Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is going to say that to them later. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Now, there's a whole host of of things when it comes to John the Baptist, and some of the very detailed nuances of of what John as a baptizer is all about, what we'll dig into in our sermon study after this. So please, please come be part of that to dig a little deeper. But for now, I want to look at the context in which John the Baptist shows up, because I think one of the things you'll find is that it is remarkably similar to the context in which we find ourselves today. See, Matthew starts his his book with the genealogy of Jesus. It is the generations from Abraham all the way out from, even from Adam, all the way down to Jesus. And, And usually we like to skip things like genealogies in scripture. But it's important to understand that Matthew is very intentional about why he puts a genealogy at the forefront of his gospel. See, the time that the Jews find themselves in, as John the Baptist shows up on the scene, is a very stressful and distraught time. They are under Roman rule. And and one of the challenges as God's people is they have not heard a word from the Lord for about 400 or so years. If we go back to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, you'll see that John the Baptist himself and the Christ are, are prophesied about. It says that one day a person will come to prepare the way for the Lord, and, and John will show up, and he will announce the coming of Jesus, and the Messiah will come. But then, after all of these years of various prophets, major and minor, talking about the way the Lord will redeem his people, there is 400 plus years of absolute silence. No one hears from God whatsoever. He's seemingly no longer talking to his people. And it starts to go on for generations and generations. And you start to have grandpa who will tell his grandkids, you know, when I was your age, I remember we had the prophet Malachi talking about the coming savior. And eventually his generation dies off and we go generation after generation after generation of the Jewish people, to the point where when we get to the time of John the Baptist, there's no one alive for generations and generations 
who has ever heard from God. See, see the Lord and his work and the promise of salvation are, are these stories that they're told the Jews continue to worship. But you have to admit, after that much silence, the people have probably grown somewhat weary, somewhat hopeless, and somewhat apathetic. They're in a time where God is not really seen to be active. Right? They worship him, they go to the temple, and they, they bring their sacrifices, but where is he? Where is he? Maybe you feel like that this, this today. Maybe in the world we find ourselves, you wonder, you know, I, I know we come to worship every Sunday, and we worship God together. We sing the songs, we hear the word. But yeah, I just, I have a hard time seeing him in my everyday life. You know, where was he during this? Maybe that's where you are around this Christmas season. Maybe you're wondering where God has been. See, in addition to that, the people were not just wondering where God was, but they were under the thumb of Roman rule. Now, Roman rule was very interesting. The Romans had, had a way of conquering territory where they would allow the people to kind of continue to live in a lot of ways the way they lived. They would take over, they would have people, governor, you know, governing authorities over the people that they'd conquered, but they kind of let them live their lives. And so the Jews were allowed to worship freely as long as they also gave to Caesar what was his, right? And not in the way that God says, give to Caesar but Caesar's, but they, they wanted that, that the people would submit to Caesar. So they were under this oppressive rule and they were overtaxed and they had all this stuff that just wasn't in line, right? They were kind of able to worship, but not able to live their lives out entirely freely as they wanted to. They had this thumb over them. And so as they heard the prophecies, one of the hopeful things that they anticipated is that the Savior would come and deliver them from the rule of the Roman people. That was their hope. See, we today live in a way that we're maybe in the U.S. we're not necessarily persecuted in the way that we think of where, where we have people threaten our livelihoods, come after us in our health, or beat us for being followers of Christ. But there is certainly a level of oppression that takes place in our, in our culture today. The Christian voice is more and more silenced by the governing authorities, by the powers that be. It seems like every year we have less and less Christian liberty. It seems like every year there's more times where the way of Christian living is somehow threatened by the powers that are over us. Right? As people continue to go to courts and fight those battles, we are having to admit that it's increasingly hard to live out a Christian life and moral ethic in the world in which we find ourselves. And so just as the people back then, we also have ways that we are oppressed. It's not quite the same. It's not comparable in intensity, but there are similarities to the culture of John the Baptist's day and the culture of today. And in both contexts, there's this, this vacancy of where is God? And in the midst of that, here comes John the Baptist. And he comes out and he starts to proclaim the words of Isaiah. Right? It says, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John is coming out of the woodworks, exactly how the prophecy foretold. And he's saying, listen, guys, it's time. 
The, the one who you've been waiting for is here. See, verse 2 says, repents because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the Christian Standard Bible. Some of them say because the kingdom is close, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is coming. I think the phrase has come near is probably one of the better translations of that phrase because if you look at it in the original language, you have this kind of perf this past tense that signifies that it's, it's already come. As John is saying this, it's already here because by the time he comes on the scene, the, the Savior is born. He hasn't started his ministry yet, but Jesus is among us. And so he says, the kingdom is here. It has come near. Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the promised one is here. And so what should we do as a result of that? We ought to repent. We should repent. What is one of the primary ways that we as a people can prepare ourselves for the coming of the Messiah? It is to repent. And the people respond favorably. See, when John comes up, it's kind of crazy because he comes out of the woodworks. He's looking kind of homeless. He's eating locusts and all those kinds of things. Some people think that he was part of a, a, a sect back in, in the woods that kind of lived among themselves um, as, as he came out. But they, they see this guy and for some reason they take him seriously because for the first time in 400 years, they hear that hope has come. In the midst of their chaos, in the midst of their struggle, they, they hear the Messiah has arrived. And so they come to him and they, they repent and they're baptized. And in our study later, we'll dig into this. John is actually the first person ever in, in, in the history of, of Christianity up to this point, Christianity, in the history of God's people to baptize with water. There were some instances of, of some various groups self-baptizing. You know, they would, they would baptize themselves. But, but this idea of baptizing someone else John's the first one to ever do that because the people come and they repent and he says, here's, here's a sign and symbol of, of that repentance, of the fact that you are putting your lives in the hands of the Savior who is to come. And so they come and they are baptized. And we know that the Lord approves of this because even as Jesus comes and he starts his public ministry a few chapters down the line, Jesus himself is baptized by John the Baptist. But John comes and announces for us to prepare the way for God to come. And so, as we've said, as we prepare for all other kinds of things, see, we ought to also prepare spiritually. We know this is true. We, we, we don't fight this. But one of the challenges is that we have is that we really don't know what it necessarily means to prepare ourselves spiritually. And so I want to just look really quickly at what it means for us to be spiritually prepared. What is it that we actually do? What do we do in the next few weeks to get ourselves ready for Christmas? Here's a few suggestions. The first is that we spend some time in prayer and repentance. Think through the things of this year and spend time confessing the ways in which you've come short to God. And do it not just for yourself, but do it for your family as well. As a family, gather together and reflect and say, you know, here's, here's the ways as a family in which we really need to grow. And we need to ask God for forgiveness for some things. Right? The best way that you can come to the Lord is on your knees in repentance to say, Lord, I cannot do this without you. Apart from you, I am nothing. And here's the ways and the things of this year that are a prime example of that. 
and, and just give yourself to him and say, I am yours. To prepare for the arrival of Jesus, we must repent. For some of us, we might need to repent of some of the ways in which we've approached this, this holiday season in the past. Right? Maybe we've made it all about the presents and the, and the secular things and getting to see Santa and all those things. And they're good things. They're not bad. But they're not the thing. And if you've made anything but the Lord the greatest thing of Christmas, perhaps it's time for some repentance. The second thing is that we come to the Lord in prayer and we, we draw near to him through scripture, through engaging with our Bibles, through reading through the text. One of the best things you could do in the next four weeks on your own time is to open up and read through the book of Isaiah. To look at the prophecy. See, the beauty of scripture is that it's this cohesive story. And when Jesus comes, it, it is to fulfill things that have been spoken of thousands of years ago. And so read through the book of Isaiah and see the way he engages with his people. And when we get to Christmas Eve and we read the prophecies of Isaiah and we get into the book of Luke and we start to read the story of the birth of Christ and we start to see how the two of them correlate, to spend some time in the book of Isaiah on your own is a phenomenal way that you can prepare yourself to meet Christ on Christmas. Read it. Get together with your family and read it. If you need a reading plan for Isaiah, contact me and I will get you one. But engage that scripture together and dig in and prepare. You can prepare by making worship the central portion of your week. We talked about this last week, that worship is not just something that we consume, but that it's something that we engage in. And so you can prepare your household to receive Christ by regular intentional participation in worship. Get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, in, in this case virtually, but throughout the week. Have your own little Zoom Bible studies. Connect with people. Contact people in your church and pray for them. We need to spend time preparing our hearts and minds. See, because we think that Christmas will just come and go and that we'll be ready. It's the weird thing that we talked about at the beginning where when it comes to our hearts and spiritual things, somehow we just think that we don't need to prepare or we act as if we don't. And we wonder why our spiritual growth is constantly stagnant. Why year after year as we reflect, we find, yeah, I'm really not in any better or different place than I was one year ago. It's because we don't take the time to prepare. Jesus sent John the Baptist ahead of himself to ready the people, to put them in a mindset, to get them used to the idea of thinking about a savior who is coming and, and the beauty of it for us is that we live on both the other side of Christmas, but also on this side of the not yet. And what I mean by that is, as we watch John announce the, the first coming of Christ and the people prepare to receive the Savior, we also are in the same vein waiting for the Savior to arrive. Not just for the next four weeks, but ultimately we anticipate the second coming of Jesus, and we are in a state of waiting. We are here wondering when it is that he will come again, and he calls us to be ready for his arrival. That when Christ comes, 
He would be coming and we would be ready and we would be prepared to receive him as, as the bride is ready for the bridegroom. So our job is to prepare ourselves for the arrival of Christ. This season, I want to encourage you each day to spend time preparing for Christmas the way that we ought to prepare. Worry a little less about what ends up under the tree and worry a little more about what ends up in the hearts and minds of you and your family. Let us together approach this holiday season in reverence to God, ready to receive him, so that by the time we get to Christmas Eve, we can celebrate together and our hearts and minds are all united and in the right place. And I look forward to that day. I look forward to celebrating Christmas Eve with all of you. I cannot wait together to lift up the name of Christ as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And we are prepared to do so because we have done the work. As we prepare for all other things, so we must prepare for this. And so my hope and prayer is that this week you would get yourself ready. That you would remember, maybe write down the ways that God has been at work in your life. That you would do the little things of discipline so that you can be ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have come, that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the punishment for our sins, to take the brunt of our pain and suffering on the cross so that we might live. And God, we praise you not just for the fact that you sent your son once, but we anticipate and praise you for when you will send him again. And we humbly ask that we will be ready to receive him. We pray that this week you would remind us, that you would give us creative ways that we can make this season primarily about you. Not the gifts, not the Santa magic, not whatever those things would be, but that it would be about you and your kingdom. Father, this has been a tough year. Many of us have experienced hardship and loss. And so maybe this year more than ever, we join with John in the book of Revelation as we cry out, come Lord Jesus. And Father, we selfishly ask that you would come soon. Our prayer is that this season of Advent would actually be a preparation for your second coming, that this Christmas might be the day that you arrive so that we can live forever with you in glory. That is our hope, that is our prayer, that is our focus. And through your spirit, we ask that you would keep our minds sharp. That you would give us wisdom as we interact with family members and others in our circles and spheres. That around the Christmas tables this year, that you would be lifted high and that our minds would remain on you. Be with us this week. Let us leave this worship service stronger than we entered it because your word has pierced our hearts. We love you and praise you. And all his people said.